Welcome to the Real Estate Addicts Podcast. This is episode 53 with your hosts, Mark Svatsky from Choose Boston. Dan Rubin, HRV Homes. Ray Herto, HRV Homes. And joining us today is our guest. I thought I was going next. Sorry about that. The introduction Let's, can be confusing. We got today with us, Guy Morello. How do you say your last name? Gaetano Morello. Guy. This is one that's been in the making for a little while, so we're excited to have you with us. I toured a project with you in the South End probably a year ago now. Very cool brownstone project on Shaman Ave. Did you finish that one up? I did. Yeah, that was 320 Shaman Ave by the Buttery in the South End. I took you through the penthouse there, I think. Yeah, you guys did a really cool job sort of with the master suite using that dramatic ceiling to kind of do a little bit of a loft style living. I liked what you guys did on the windows. Thank you. Yeah, we uh, the vision for that unit was a full out bachelor pad. So we had um, that like smoking glass shower that overlooked the, the city. You flip a switch and it smokes out, so you can't you can't see in. And we did like all automated blinds, sound, and used some really cool uh, stone in there. So it was a cool project. Have you got any calls callbacks from buyers for that smoked? So just for buyers who haven't seen this before, you literally flip a switch for buyers. <laughs> for listeners who haven't seen this before, you flip a switch and it smokes out the glass to give you privacy. And then you hit it again and it's clear. And you use this in a shower application, uh, which is wild. Any challenges with water and uh, buyers actually putting it to use and through the test? Yeah. So to be quite honest with you, I don't think the technology is fully there. Okay. It's the film that you cover the glass with mm-hmm. and then it has a low voltage wire on it. And when you switch it, it completely fogs out. And we built this shower and there was, in front of it, there was like this six foot tall window that overlooked the city of Boston. It was incredible, but there are obviously concerns about people watching you take a shower. So we installed that, the electrified film to put over it and... I think that that technology has a ways to go and I wouldn't actually use it again um, until it gets a little bit, a little better. It tends to sort of like bubble up a little bit. So I don't think I'd be using it again. But. Yeah, I, I haven't seen it in a shower application, but I have seen it in conference room applications where there's like a conference room and there's a whole line of glass that you can see in the conference room if they're having a you know, a meeting that needs to be private, they'll flip a switch and then it will get private, will go private. But I haven't seen it in a shower application before. So that's pretty cool. Guy, you do a lot of real high-end stuff. Have you been getting requests for steam showers? Honestly, I, I always think about putting steam showers in and then I never get around to doing it. And I haven't had any complaints or anybody really requesting it or wishing it was there. But I think steam showers are great. And if I was building my own place, I'd probably put one in. So I just get nervous with all the moisture. It is a kind of a challenging feature to, to build properly. You, get, you have to get everything right. There's intolerance for error. But I had a good conversation with Ricardo Rodriguez, who we were chatting about earlier, and he was sort of pitching it as, um, you know, buyers want a spa, like a luxurious experience in their bathrooms, in their master bath. And so, yeah, that, that steam shower sort of plays right into that whole, you know, spacious, really high, gorgeous master bath. Yeah. Yeah. Tangents. Have you done them before, Mark? Uh, we, we have, yeah. We have. 
The other thing to consider with the steam shower is that it takes up space for the steam unit. You need to find a little bit of real estate. Typically, if you have like a closet that backs up to the shower, but you need a drain, you need, there's, there's a lot that goes into it. But that brings me to the next tangent, which is master bedrooms and master baths is now potentially a faux pas. Primary bedrooms, primary bathrooms. Like the language changed, but the concept is the same. Are you saying that like a master or primary, whatever it is, bedroom, bathroom, are you making that distinction different than it being an ensuite? Or are you saying that now you've got primary I'm just bedroom, talking about primary bathroom? No, like just the lexicon, straight up terminology. There's yeah. articles now that I've that some afforded to me. And uh, they just sort of say that that word has a negative connotation to it. It's very masculine. It harkens back to, uh, you know, parts of our country's history that we're not proud of. And uh, so we should start using primary bedrooms, primary bathrooms. Ah, my follow-up to you is going to be, does that mean that every bedroom needs to have its own ensuite now? But I digress. Um, Yeah, I'll just throw that out there. It's something to chew on. Learn something new every day. I never knew that there was a politically correct way to say master bedroom, master bath, but hey. It is 2020. Guys, when you start seeing that listing descriptions in any year from now, you're going to be like, Savatsky said that on the podcast. Next subject, Freedom Boat Club. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Can we go 24 hours without talking Uh, about boats, Mark? No, I'm a proud member. You were boating earlier, right? Wasn't that why we couldn't do the podcast at first? (laughs) Yes. It's kind of interfered with a lot. Mark has priorities like the best thing i've started on in the past like five months the Wait, only thing I've i didn't buy a boat i joined a, a boat club so they have like 60 boats around the harbor here and you can make reservations it's like a golf club for poor people maybe i don't know it's fun though nice well we're struggling for guy you renovate uh <laughs> <laughs> so you, you're more into the high-end development market, correct? Correct. The luxury townhomes and condominiums. So what kind of got you into that space versus, I don't know, I'd say more of like the first time homebuyer market. Merging neighborhoods. Yeah, I think that I lived in New York for a while and I worked at Sotheby's when I was there. And I kind of got exposed to a lot of these really high-end luxury listings. My my first listing there when I was 25, I took on a $12.5 million townhouse, which was pretty amazing piece of property. I was I was with the number one team there in New York and just showing some pretty high-end stuff. When I came back to Boston, I sort of wanted to take those design elements from Manhattan and start putting them into these historic properties from the inside. And it really just started with Gloucester Street because that was the first deal that I saw when I got back. It was in the back bay. The numbers made sense and I just ran with it. It did well. And then I kind of just stayed in that vein and started kind of getting to know the back bay neighborhoods, what it costs to build there, what it costs to pick up the property for, and then moved to South End, Beacon Hill. And I've just kind of stayed in those neighborhoods. Not to say I wouldn't 
do anything outside of those neighborhoods at a lower sellout per square foot. It's just kind of the niche that I've carved out for myself sort of by chance, but also I, I have a lot of fun playing with really high-end finishes because I think it's it's just super cool to to use like nice fixtures, nice stones, and, and really see like this beautiful project come to life. Oh, it's definitely more fun when you have budget to play with. You can get a lot more creative. But you mentioned one thing that piqued my interest, cost to build. So can you share with us what typically you're seeing as far as like a gut renovation in a uh, typical brownstone south end back bay? Yeah, I'm spending about 350 to 375 in hard costs and then probably another 75 to 100 in soft. So all in I'm like around usually around 450 hard and soft. Yeah, the economics are interesting right now. We were chatting about this a little on the phone uh, before you came on, but I figure that a shell in the South End, just a building that needs everything, is going to trade right now, I think, between seven and 800 a square foot. Add to that three to 400 in hard costs. The margins are compressed. It's, it, you have to sort of achieve perfection, in my opinion. Yeah, what are the sellouts now in, in like the South End neighborhoods? I don't, I'm not familiar with south end sellout pricing obviously it depends where you are but i think that it would be realistic to say you could achieve like 1500 a square foot i think that that's i was selling at around that for the penthouse and shaman Ave. so i think that that's a real realistic gauge and honestly i wish i was seeing more property for between seven and eight hundred dollars a square foot i feel like in the south end now it's even creeping up towards a thousand so like product that needs. That's really tight. Those numbers are really, really tight. Well, I've said this before in the podcast, but my, my feeling on brownstones is sort of like IBM stock. It's like a blue chip. Like you pretty well know the cost of construction. You shouldn't be too surprised. And you pretty much know what's going to come out of the oven when you're done. 1550 a square foot, 1600. And it's not going to sit. It's always going to be desirable. And so for that reason, I think the risk is diminished in a lot of ways. But for the same reason, the, maybe the margins aren't quite the same. Yeah, I think what's awesome about the brownstone projects too is that you, know, you can't really mimic them. And each one is really, truly unique. Because of the laws that are in place, you can't disrupt the front of the building. And a lot of the structure you know, needs to stay intact. So you end up with these really like unique situations inside so and i think people really are drawn to that because there's no other home like it you know because when you're building ground up i feel like a lot of times the layouts get to feel very similar and you approach that kind of cookie cutter sort of terminology and the brownstones i think are just very unique and buyers love that so moving off of like the high-end condo work you've done you also have a pretty large portfolio of multifamily investment property and you've done stuff in Lynn and certainly some um, more entry level uh, housing. So can you talk a little about how you got into, into that space and uh, what your company's kind of focused on on the rental side? Yeah, sure. So it's a, it's a family business. I work uh, for High Street Properties, which my father started and he's always been about long-term hold multifamily property. So he taught me every, everything I know about that, all the underwriting and the, the condo conversion stuff is something that I kind of went off and did on my own, but I'm still very much involved with the investment side. So it was really him who 
who introduced me to it. And yeah, our portfolio is mainly in Cambridge and Somerville. We own some properties in the North End, in Brookline, and we're still looking to you know grow that portfolio. And I think that it's really important to have you know both the development and the multifamily portfolio going at the same time because you know development can be very cyclical. So it's it's great to just have portfolio of of passive income throughout those, you know, if there's ever kind of like a downturn. Such as now. Hmm. Yeah, well, we'll see. It really hasn't materialized. There was like, it seemed like there was like three weeks where people hit the panic button. But aside from that, I haven't really seen discounts on, on real estate, at least in the city of Boston. You know, we've seen seen some of the higher end stuff sitting for longer, depending on, but overall stuff stuff seems to be moving still. Yeah. yeah, I will say with with our rents, we are taking a bit of a hit on our our rents, which will affect property values, obviously because the income is going to be less. But everyone is paying their rent on time. A lot of people didn't renew, so you know we have some vacancy right now that we're trying to fill up, and that's caused downward pressure on rents, which I think could affect values. But then again, you know. Rates are so low, so cap rates are compressed. So right now, I think everything's just like pretty stable, but I'm cautiously optimistic. I know. I would agree with you on the rental side. We're seeing some of this just based on, you know, more vacancy, more turnover. Certain neighborhoods, we're seeing a lot more available inventory than in the past. And so it's kind of creating that downward pressure on the rents, as you said, because there's a lot more product for people to choose from. So it's causing rents to kind of be lowered for stay competitive. And we where we haven't had to do that in the past. So and those are those aren't like high end high end rentals. Those are kind of like Yeah, but on the flip side with that Dan, um, you know, the property that we have in uh near Bridgewater State, um What's interesting there, and I and I don't know if other people who own properties near universities have experienced the same thing. That university is coming back, but their on-campus housing is coming back in a, a limited capacity, and they're not doing you know, of course, triples, and they're basically doing far fewer number of people that can live on campus. They're reserving some space for anybody that may need to go into quarantine if there's a second spike. So what that's done is it, I think it's gotten rid of almost all of the vacancies that we saw literally a month ago. So we got fully booked. And so I thought that was kind of interesting. And I, and I think it's obviously going to be university dependent. So that's another trend that we saw with rentals. That's interesting. I'm finding that the North End market, we're particularly having a lot of difficulty with because those units are quite small. And they're often roommate situations. So this work from home trend has made it like nearly impossible for roommates to live and work with each other in these apartments. So a lot of them aren't renewing. They're moving back to their parents' house. They're not sure when they're going to be going back to work. So there's just a lot kind of up in the air right now. I think the other thing to watch is uh, there was a trend towards co-living, which is... You know, basically, like, think of it as a uh, suite in a college dorm. I wonder what the economics of that look like 
And again, I think that people have short memories and I think that we will have a vaccine and this will be something in our in the past and people won't necessarily put a lot of emphasis on it after it's, it's behind us. I like your positive attitude, Mark. Thanks. I've been wrong about everything since the beginning of COVID, but I'll continue to make bold predictions. Yeah, just this Wasn't week, it at the start? Go sorry, wasn't it at the start you said, was it Paris and Boston were the strongest cities or something? What were you yeah. saying, like, five, six episodes back? Yeah, when everyone was in panic mode, I, I had heard that people were, there was a flight to quality for real estate and that uh, people with, with cash were just looking for places to park it. So blue chip real estate in downtown Boston was uh, seeing a lot of demand, even in the worst of the weeks. To your credit, Mark, I've seen articles recently as of last week that said Boston is probably is coming out as like one of the most resilient cities from a real estate perspective from the pandemic. So Mark has a crystal ball. Hey, thanks. Uh, I'll leave out the other things that I was totally wrong about. <laughs> like that everyone's pants were going to be on fire and that we were going to get huge discounts on multifamily buildings in some of the emerging neighborhoods because that certainly has not happened. The world is ending. I'm still waiting for that, that seller with their pants on fire. But It's kind um, of a catch-22. It's like you want your existing property and portfolio <laughs> to perform, but then like you also want community. <laughs> so it's like, it's tough. These brownstones are the higher end stuff, the development stuff, in addition to the, the price per, the higher price per foot on the build costs. What are you seeing? Are you seeing, obviously, you have to go through certain, I guess, historical commissions and stuff like that, which particularly will extend timelines and, and things like that. So what's the average time frame for, you know, a gut of a brownstone? In other words, you know, three-family new construction ground up is usually like nine or 10 months. But how long does the, that brownstone process take and what are the hoops you have to go through with historical stuff? Yeah, so it usually takes about 12 months. But I always pro forma 18 just in case, you know, I want to make sure that like it, I carry enough for that. Dealing with the neighborhood associations, dealing with landmarks and that process can take a while. It's usually about four or five months. But you want to try to hire a really good zoning attorney so that you can get started throughout that process. So immediately, you know, you get your demolition permit. Maybe you're lucky and you can get a structural framing permit before the actual alt is issued, the neighborhood process is done. But, you know, like here in Beacon Hill, it's a fun challenge, but it's definitely a challenge because there are a lot of requirements that you need to meet in terms of, you know, with the front exterior of the building, you got to use very specific windows. They want buzzer systems with no lights on them. Everything needs to, you know, really fit the context of the neighborhood. And, you know, in these neighborhood meetings, everybody has an opinion. So, it can be uh, it can be a challenge, but it's the, fun. You know? The Landmarks Commission is very exact in their standards. There is not a lot of gray area uh, or, or, or interpretation. It's um, you know when you do a roof deck in the South End or Back Bay before you put the deck up. I've often had to meet uh, a representative from the Landmarks Commission, hold basically a flag or a pole where the roof deck is going to go and mock up. 
the corners of the deck to the height of the top of the railings. In doing so, they verify that it is not visible from the street and that you can build your roof deck of that size in that location. So just one of many uh, hurdles. Is it fair to say that when you're having the community meetings, more often than not, it's not like they're saying they don't want the project. They're just very specific in what they want it to look like. Or do you have situations where somebody may come out and just, you know, because we see this a lot in, um, in, in projects that we do too. Some people just come out and say, I don't want to, I don't care what it looks like. Yeah, but with, a, with, a brown, with a brownstone, you can't really change the way it looks. Yeah, you can't add FAR or anything like that. So like the project's going to go forward. So it really is more of like, can you put the roof deck on there? Do we agree with there being rear decks? And in those things, they have an opinion on what it can look like. They might have an opinion on, you know, how, how many panes are in the front windows. Like is it six over six or, you know, two over two? What color is the trim? Like those sort of things, you know, the neighborhood associations are really attached to. But in terms of like massing and stuff, that's never even brought up because you just can't add any FAR whatsoever. They won't let you, they will not let you add a story or an addition. There's something that allows you to add a certain amount of, uh, a certain addition off of the rear, perhaps, but it, it triggers. After a certain uh, addition, it, tr- it triggers a conditional use permit. And what is a nice feature in the zoning in those neighborhoods, I'll say, is there is an exemption that allows you to take advantage of every square foot within the confines of the shell. So if you have a two-level basement and you want to fit out both the basement and the sub-basement, go, have at it. There isn't an FAR limitation so long as you stay within the envelope. But as soon as you add to the rear or up, it's, you're going to get flagged. Yeah, it also really depends on which neighborhood you're yeah. in. It's like I think South End is a little bit more lenient with that. Beacon Hill is probably the toughest. It just it really depends. They all they all have kind of different rules and regulations. Tell us about the Mastermind program that you've been working on. Sounds very cool, and I'm interested in joining. <laughs> yeah, it's great. So I started I started this thing called Level Up. It's a real estate mastermind and. And what it does is it brings people together who are involved in real estate to support one another in their personal and professional lives. So just imagine having a team of individuals who are 100% fully committed and dedicated to seeing you succeed. That's what this team is. And we meet once a week and we... We give each other stretches, so like challenges to do week to week to get out of your comfort zone, to level up in your career. We bring on guest speakers. We had um, Bob Knackle, uh, founder of Massey Knackle, chairman of JLL, come on and speak to us. So it's a way that we can all help each other. So like we might have a broker who's just starting out and then we'll have like a a really top performing broker in the group. He can support him, let him know the things he needs to do to to get to that next level in his career. Or if somebody has a question about development, you know, I'm there to answer it. So it's it's an accountability platform. It's a support system. It's, you know, like a, a real estate kind of like info session or think tank. So it's a lot of things, but it's been, it's been really great just to have like a team of 
people dedicated to seeing you grow. That's cool. What's sort of the cost structure? So it's $200 a month. And that just sort of covers a lot of your costs and keeps people showing up. Yeah, it's more, it keeps people showing up and serious. Like when you pay for something, you take it seriously. So I actually pay for a lot of coaching myself. And, you know, I pay $500,000 a month, certain individuals to coach me. So I think that, you know, in the, in the spectrum of, of coaching, it's a, it's a reasonable price. And you get a ton of value out of it. I mean, like a lot of our members together have done deals, you know, multi-million dollar deals. So that fee is... is how, many, how many members do you currently have? We have 20 members. Is it Boston specific? It's mostly Boston. We have one member in Miami, two in New York City, and one in Cleveland, Ohio. So if if guys wanted more information on it or to find out how to join, what what should they do? Go to levelupboss.com or follow us on Instagram, levelupboss. I think we should do a game of overrated, underrated, or appropriately rated. I love it. Let's do it. I know this game. I've seen you uh, play it with uh, our boy D'Artagnan. Yes. I think you guys are D'Artagnan's favorite client. You guys are all over the Embark social media uh, all the time. I like it. I love working with those guys. They're the best. That was a much better endorsement than that of your um, smoked shower glass earlier. (laughs) Yeah, true. (laughs) So I'll kick it off. Let's just say fireplaces. Underrated. Especially wood burning. Ooh, well, difficult thing to permit a wood burning fireplace. I don't. Yeah, yeah unless, unless it's existing, not, unless it's existing, right? Yeah, if it's existing, you're good. I've seen those Scandinavian. They're like pods that kind of float from the ceiling. Yeah, and there's like a big ch- chimney stack. Yeah, there, there's a word for them, and I just think those are so cool. I would love to put that in a unit. I just don't think Boston Fire is going to uh, look kindly upon that. They'll they'll be very angry with you. Yeah. <laughs> I'll Google that so yeah. tough, with like the venting and everything. It's it's always such a challenge. Yeah. All right. Well, how about uh, freestanding tubs? Overrated. I think from a design perspective, it looks great and everything. But I would much rather have like a massive shower with like tons of jets and two shower heads. And I just made that move. Who takes baths anymore? I don't know. I I mean, I don't take baths, but I imagine I always, when I think of baths, I imagine like some pretty girl in there with like rose petals, reading a book with a glass of wine or something. So I usually just figure it's like, you know, that. Are you putting them, are you putting them in, in a lot of your master or your primary? Primary. (laughs) Um, No, actually I haven't done any master primary bathtubs. I haven't. They are expensive. I just reworked a primary bath and we had a freestanding tub and a shower. And I just was like, let's do two shower heads. Let's do body jets. And I'll still save money. And I think it'll wow buyers much more than having like a mediocre shower and a mediocre freestanding tub. There's just like the hardware and the plumbing fixtures for a freestanding tub are expensive. And if you have units that are separated by level, you need for the plumbing code an access panel to reach like a floor mounted tub filler needs wants to have a access panel below it. 
So inevitably, that would be in someone else's ceiling in a unit below you. So it's awkward. We didn't have to do that. I wouldn't advertise that. What? <laughs> I wouldn't advertise that you didn't do that. Well, why do you need? Why do you need that? If it's a floor-mounted tub filler, I think it's, to, it's also to reach the drain body of the tub above. I'll stand by you this one. Above the, you need it basically below the drain itself as well as the tub filler. Yeah, but what if the, the filler has shutoffs that you just lift off the cap and you could turn them off right there? Hmm, maybe that is the solution. I should research this. up an insane amount of space. Yeah. So, you know, that's I'd rather true. have that, that space in like my master bed. Well, that's, I mean, in a 5,000 square foot single family where you have a, math, a primary bathroom that's like 500 square feet, fine. But in the city, it's just, I feel that space is set such a premium. And just having that, that, like that tub itself takes up so much space. Yeah, our floor plans are really efficient. Even though they are very high end, they're not like that ultra, ultra high end $2,000 plus a square foot, which over three floors and huge rooms and stuff. So for us, they just don't fit. Well, you mentioned it earlier about the um, integrated blinds, the automated integrated blinds. Underrated. I think integrated blinds are awesome and gives you privacy. You can sleep in. I just think you want to make sure you put in the right ones. You don't want to go too cheap because then they can just be a pain in, pain in the butt and give you a lot of issues. So, What do you spend on, on uh, like integrated blinds? At Shamit, I want to say I spent 8000 for a, ma- a primary suite. Not inexpensive. No. Not inexpensive. No. And those weren't even uh, the real high-end ones. Along those lines, are you, what are you doing for smart home systems in your homes, in your buildings? I'm really not doing much, honestly. I mean, I put in a Nest thermostat, video intercom, and surround sound. And, you know, the video intercom will go to your cell phone and things of that nature. But I'm not doing, like... I know there's so much technology out there right now that I haven't even explored. Dan and I have a good product, this brilliant smart switch, which is Alexa-enabled. I also use just a, uh, a smart switch from Leviton. And it doesn't need a hub. It's just Wi-Fi enabled. And it's Alexa compatible. So I like to put those just at least in the living room and your main bedroom. I just feel that the problem with all these smart home technologies is that you're cornering yourself and everything is changing so quickly. And you're putting, you're putting something in and in six months or less, it's going to be outdated. Like I remember couple of years ago, all these guys are putting in the iPod docks. Oh, yeah. Bedrooms. And then, oh, and then all, what happened? Now it's a lightning port. All those are useless. So it's like, I just feel like anything hardwired these days that isn't wireless, that you have to spend a lot of all this money on building it in and wiring for, it just gets so dated so quickly because technology moves so fast. I mean, think about all the intercom systems we've put in. I think we change intercoms once a year. And we always had one of those stations that was in the unit on the wall. We don't do that anymore. With the guy's point, most of them now will just interface right with your with your phone over IP. All right. So should we do one more round? Let's do it. Low income housing tax credits. Didn't you do a deal? Is this you, you told me this once, right? A multi and Lynn with housing tax credits? Not with housing tax credits. It was oh, no? section eight. 
But okay. I will say that um, I'll say appropriately rated because I don't have a ton of experience with them. Well, go go uh, section eight rentals. Underrated. Okay. Underrated. They pay at or above market rent, and the stigma on tenant quality is totally false. It's That's... a great way to uh, get rent in on the first of every month, guaranteed. Um, That's a good nugget. Underrated. We should do an episode just on section eight uh, housing. Or, well, I mean, the building that we're buying, the eight unit building, will be it will be all section eight, and it will be our first experience doing something like that so it'll be a good uh it'll be a good case study would you guys be willing to come on the podcast and talk about it oh <laughs> uh, i don't know I'm, I, i've done like one or two section eight deals but i'm sure you could find someone with a lot more experience than myself to think on that subject maybe we'll track dan and ray's follies as they buy this building in about two hours about, yeah, actually 15 minutes. <laughs> okay, so this is really the last one. Dan, Dan, go ahead. Engineered hardwood floors. Underrated. <laughs> I loved using them. I used them in Shamit. They looked so clean. They didn't get like, they just integrated perfectly. The color was exactly how I wanted them. I mean, I love natural wood floors, but I will say it's never exactly the shade or color that you want it. And with engineered, you know exactly how it's going to look. I heard some builder say recently, though, this stuck with me. He's like, I like to do engineered hardwood floors that are unfinished and I finish them in place. And the reason is because what makes a wood floor beautiful is the imperfections and the, you know, the slight deviations between. And uh, you just, you don't get that when it comes out of a factory. I don't know. It appealed to me when he said it, but I still think that I would just do an engineering department. I think it totally depends on the project too. Yeah. So if you want to get, you know, in those high-end buildings, if you want to get those like six or seven inch wide, you got to go engineer. You get, I mean, it's just... Yeah, we did five inch white oak at 33 Mount Vernon Street, but I understand there's the issue with the Boeing. So we, we glue them and we nail them. And, you know, I think that's great for five inch, but you're right. If you go any wider, even gluing and nailing, is not going to solve the Boeing issue. Right. You got one last one? Solar panels and or charging stations for someone's Tesla or electric vehicle. That's two, but we'll, we'll allow it. <laughs> That's definitely two. You know what I'm getting at? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, I would say underrated. I'm a big proponent for climate change and efficiencies of that nature. So I'm going to support the green movement and go with underrated. And Teslas are sweet. Tell you what's been challenging for us recently is Eversource, the uh, electric utility, is uh, pushing a lot of people towards transformers, which is a cost and uh, you know a space allocation that there's just no room for. And we've tried to put in a lot of car chargers and sometimes it tips the scales towards a transformer. So we have to think really critically. Interesting. See, that wasn't so bad. No, that was a a great last one here. So, (laughs) Guy, we know how to find uh, your mastermind group. If folks want to follow you on Instagram or elsewhere, how do they find uh, your company? At Real Estate Boss with one S or at High Street Properties. And street is abbreviated ST. That's how you find me. Awesome. Guy, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And I'll walk you through a couple of my projects next week. 
yeah, we're excited to see you down. Yeah, we in, can't uh, wait. He can help, right? Yeah. That's right. Thanks everyone for uh, listening, for rating, reviewing, and uh, subscribing. And uh, we'll see you guys on the next one. Catch you guys later. Cheers.